and welcome to another episode of the Radio DePaul podcast. My name is Amy Doe, and I hope you had a nice spring break. Now that the flowers are kind of blooming, it's service season, with DePaul's annual Vincentian Service Day scheduled for May 4th. DePaul as an institution places a heavy emphasis on the idea of service and learning while doing. Unlike a lot of colleges, experiential learning is a requirement within the Common Core for all majors. In this episode, we talk about activism, justice, and figuring out how to do what's right in a world that seems full of wrong. Greg Trotter used to be a journalist. Articles from the Tribune written by him include, McDonald's plans new menu items to lure customers, acknowledges short-term pain from renovations, and as craft beer sales slow, two brothers and other brewers launch into spirits. Now he works with the public relations branch of the Greater Chicago Food Depository. We talked with him about the reason for his career change and what DePaul students can do to combat food injustice and the stigma against food banks within their own communities. Yeah, so um, I was for five years and nine or ten months at the Tribune. Uh, For most of that, I was a business reporter covering the food industry. You know, I felt like as a journalist... Um, I would occasionally write stories that would have an impact. Um, and then, you know, and then I would be write stories that I cared much less about, right? Because I was assigned those stories and, um, that was the job and, um, I had a beat to take care of. So, you know, like I'd write about the new breakfast sandwich on the McDonald's menu and stuff like that, which like, you know, like really didn't do much for me, you know, didn't move the needle in any sort of personal way. He moved to his position at the Chicago Food Depository because of his passion for food equity and justice. I just, you know, I feel like, I feel very strongly that no one should go hungry. Um, And just the fact that that in itself has become almost a political statement um, in in the times that we're in now is sort of nuts to me. A lot of Greg's work involves informing and educating the public about issues surrounding food justice on both a local and national level. One thing that Greg emphasized is that food insecurity is not a constant state of being. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that is really important to keep in mind is like when you think about people going to food pantries or people on SNAP, receiving SNAP benefits, SNAP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, is the new name for what was formerly known as food stamps. It provides nutritional support for low-wage working families, low-income seniors, and people with disabilities living on fixed incomes. For a lot of people, it's not like they're just, you know, living in hunger and staying there. It can be a very episodic um, or for some cyclical uh, kind of experience, Um, you know, we saw with the recent federal government shut down that a lot of Americans are only one paycheck away from, you know, having to make really hard decisions in terms of whether to pay rent or buy food, uh, things like that. So, Despite the fact that hunger is a serious and reoccurring issue within American society, it's not sexy or provoking in the same way that something like same-sex marriage or abortion is. It's a multifaceted problem that can be difficult to parse out. There's no logline for how to solve hunger. 
Because of this, organizations like the Chicago Food Depository are working hard to raise awareness about changes in legislation regarding food justice. You know, everyone should have access to food and we should be helping those who can't afford to consistently buy their own food, um, both through charity like the Food Depository and also um, through SNAP, through protecting the federal food assistance programs that have increasingly become sort of under attack uh, politically. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, President Trump's 2019 budget would cut $213 billion of funding over the next 10 years and would affect almost every population using the program. It would eliminate all spending for nutrition education through SNAP and penalize large families by capping SNAP benefits at the level for a household of six. According to an estimate by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, approximately 755,000 Americans would lose their SNAP benefits under this new budget cut. And it's a difficult thing to neatly summarize for people it's just a complicated sort of wonky policy matter. It's hard to kind of capture the attention of people, even though it's going to have this really harmful effect to a lot of people. Thinking about food justice can feel like it's such an enormous issue that you can do absolutely nothing to solve. But part of the solution is being an informed citizen exposing yourself to different populations and working to understand the narratives of other people's lives and experiences can work to bring huge issues down to a human scale, an understandable one. Um, you know, the best, the most fulfilling times are when I go out to the food pantries and soup kitchens and to talk to the people we serve. Just going out and volunteering at a food pantry or soup kitchen and just, just talk to people, you know, and just listen to them and you'll really get a sense that Food insecurity faces so many different kinds of people, you know, it's not just one type, you know, it's people of all ages and race and gender and, um, and like, you know, even in there in Lincoln Park and, you know, and all over Chicago and the more affluent areas. We serve more than 800,000 people a year in Cook County and the need is not, you know, it's, it's significant, so it definitely requires um, the interest and concern and hard work and compassion of people your age. Um, so it's, uh, I'm glad to hear you guys are interested. Those looking to get involved with the Greater Chicago Food Depository can go to www.chicagosfoodbank.org. They have a Get Involved page that has both donation options and volunteer opportunities all over the city. Another person who is confronting larger issues by focusing on individual stories is Amelia Hruby. I really felt motivated to travel and tell these stories and learn about the work people are doing, why it matters to their community. Amelia Hruby is a freelance audio engineer, podcast producer, and PhD candidate in DePaul's Department of Philosophy. Her podcast, 50 Feminist States, is almost going to begin its second season. We talked with her about her experiences as a woman in both audio production and academia, as well as what 50 Feminist States has taught her about activism in the large scale. So 50 Feminist States is a 
road tripping storytelling podcast. That's mm-hmm. like my tagline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's a project where I've been traveling across the U.S. interviewing feminist activists and artists. So I think of it a little bit as both a time capsule of feminism in the U.S. right now and in some ways is like a really nice library of activist strategies and organizing methods uh, in various locations across the U.S. Amelia is not only a podcast producer herself, but also a PhD candidate. The female experience in academia is complex. My dissertation is on 18th century German aesthetics and contemporary, (laughs) yeah, old school white guys, dead white guys, uh, and contemporary feminist critiques of some of the key concepts that they introduced to kind of found aesthetics, which in some ways is a fancy word for philosophy of art. Academia is, I think, still obviously a male-dominated space. Even if you just look at numbers of faculty um, in tenured or tenure-track positions across the U.S., there are more men than women. Um, As a white woman, I do feel like I do not face the types and forms of discrimination that people of color do in academia across the board. Although her life is now saturated with feminist discourse and she is extremely knowledgeable about complex feminist theory, it wasn't always this way. I went to a women's college in Raleigh that didn't have, doesn't have a women's studies major, you know, doesn't have classes on feminism. There wasn't like, it's a women's college without even that emphasis in the terms of its education. And I think that says a lot about where I come from and kind of this relationship to politics that uh, I was imbued with. Amelia says that when she moved to Chicago, she was exposed to a lot of new ideas about gender and what it means to be a woman in society. I think it just comes down to like things that were called feminist and feminism in North Carolina are very different than things that were and are called feminist and feminism here in Chicago. And I, when I got to Chicago, I really I learned so much about social justice politics and just justice in general. And I learned so much about oppression and I learned so much about liberation and I learned so much about things that people were struggling for. And um, so then when I started reflecting on like, okay, how did I never know any of this before? Why wasn't I interested? You know, what did it mean that I was really always interested in like promoting women and working with and for them, but none of, you know, these issues ever came up. By making 50 feminist states, Amelia wanted to bridge the gap between academia and activism. The age-old distinction between theory and praxis that comes up all of the time, comes up especially, I think, in feminist work. You have like a robust feminist theoretical philosophers and sociologists and psychologists and people in the academy, and then you have organizers and activists um, trying to create grassroots and sometimes even like national change. Uh, So I was really interested in that. I think a lot of people have talked about that. But it is one way in which my kind of academic work intersects with the ideas behind this podcast. Amelia's work with 50 Feminist States has given her some amazing stories to tell about activists in various communities around the United States. South Dakota, I went to the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation and spoke with LaDonna Bravebill Allard, who is, uh, by most accounts, the first woman at Standing Rock who started a camp there, Um, and really talked to her about the politics of gender that she sees in her community, um, that she doesn't call feminism, but also the ways, the roles of women 
um, at Standing Rock and it was a really fascinating conversation. I learned a lot about how she perceives herself and her community and their relationship to the United States and I think that there's this tendency to think of reservations as like closed off spaces or like really far away but when you travel throughout the southwest and parts of the midwest they're really like you just you're driving on a highway and you go through them and you know I'm not sure that people should take that I don't think people should take that as an open invitation but because I was invited to go there um it was really eye-opening and exciting to just see this community and how they live and see the beauty of their land in South Dakota that they've been trying to protect Um, and and frankly see like some of the lack of resources see the ways in which they're navigating um, their own development and the ways in which they vary as LaDonna put it like they choose to like remain cut off in some aspects to a larger U.S. society that has always oppressed them so that was really striking I think Um, the other episode that came to mind is when I went to Maine I spoke to two women in Portland Maine uh, Claudette and Mickey from uh, make sure I get this right I believe from Burundi in the Democratic Republic of Congo Um, and they talked about their experiences immigrating to the U.S., their refugee experiences, um, and this nonprofit they now run called In Her Presence that works to serve uh, refugee and immigrant women in Maine. Maine is also currently the whitest state in the U.S. by percentage of population. So we really got to have a conversation about the work they're doing to serve their community. Um, and part of that work is like like training in racial justice and like training people in the vocabularies around race in the U.S. and the ways that you know many of the people that they're working with are from Africa although they're not exclusively from Africa um, and the ways that they will have to learn to position themselves between like white U.S. citizens and black U.S. citizens and them being immigrants and African, some of them being African and how like that impacts them. So we got to have a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot from them about how they kind of perceive their work and how they're trying to help their community navigate, like I think, some very contentious moments in U.S. racial politics. And I think what both of them have in common is there are places where I got to speak with people who have very different lived experiences than I do and has faced very different um, modes of oppression than I have. And with traveling to all these different places and hearing about all of the different ways that, you know, people working under the label of feminist activism are operating, how does it make you feel when, you know, feminism is labeled under just this kind of generic movement or buzzword? Talking to activists who are working in any sphere of like gender justice and liberation and dismantling patriarchy makes me feel very hopeful. Um, these people are strong. They have a lot of power. They are fighting very powerful systems, but I have a lot of confidence in them. And I do think about that a lot in the context of this sort of, I think, like lifestyle feminism that you're describing. Like feminism is a buzzword. Like when I was in college, I never. I don't know anyone who would have worn a t-shirt that said feminist on it. And now I think everybody in, I know has a shirt or a pin or a sticker. Like they've like feminism has become this like brand. Like you just like brand yourself with it. Um, and I think that really was different five years ago 
um, I don't think that would have been the case. So I want to celebrate that to a certain extent, but because of how hard I've worked to educate myself and how hard I work to educate other people, I also have very, I don't, well, I think I do have high expectations, but at least some expectation um, of people having an understanding of a feminist politics to go along with claiming any sort of identity as a feminist. Um, you know, Bell Hook says that feminism isn't an identity. It is politics. Like you have to enact feminist politics. You don't, nobody gets to just be a feminist. And I just think that's so powerful and so true that, you know, anybody can put on a shirt that says feminist, you know, including people who are very actively supporting the patriarchy doing anti-feminist things hurting women they can wear a shirt that says feminist too and so i think you know we really have to what i hope the podcast does is make accessible to folks who want to learn more about feminism or who have those shirts but really are trying to get the knowledge about the politics that that feminism supports that they can really learn some of these issues and form their own opinions on them and hear about the work that's being done and perhaps see if they want to do some of that work too those who would like to listen to 50 feminist states can go to fiftyfeministstates.com to listen to the podcast support the project and get some super cool merch This episode showcased two people who have made drastic changes in their lives to make it more aligned with the larger ideals for which they are fighting. As students, we don't always have the luxury to make those big choices, but as Vincentian Service Day approaches, it's a good time to take a moment and reflect on what ideals you hold dear in your life. What populations do you interact with or not interact with? What echo chambers are you in, online, offline? And what can you do to walk in someone else's shoes for a day? This Vincentian Service Day, consider the larger picture. This episode of the Radio DePaul podcast was created and produced by myself, Amy Doe, and John Cotter. Thank you so much to Greg and Amelia for the fantastic interviews. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. We come out with a new episode every two weeks, so please like our Facebook page to stay informed. Again, my name is Amy Doe, and thank you for listening to the Radio DePaul podcast.